Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hello and welcome back, listeners, to week three in a row of us talking Mission Impossible here on the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm one of your agents, Aaron, and the man on my team who is definitely more important than any mission is my best friend, co-host, and probably the most likely of the two of us to be able to do a magic trick, Patrick. I agree. Hello. And while I would probably fail at that, the intent is still there. I would definitely be the one to attempt a magic trick in a tense situation, but probably not execute it the way that it needs to be. I don't know. I give you at least a 50-50 chance of succeeding and not being murdered immediately. Okay. Well, I'll take that. I'll take that. I have better chances here My than chances like in zero. an episode of so The Last we, of yeah. Us. <laughs> yeah, like... yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we should bring The Last of Us commentary over to this episode. Like, where would you die, Patrick? <laughs> For sure. For sure. <laughs> well, this film has been much anticipated by fans, us included, And we are chomping at the bit to dig into our thoughts about this year's big Tom Cruise blockbuster. So, spoiler warning, if you've not made it out to the theaters yet to see Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, you should do so. We recommend it highly. It's a fun time. And we're going to dig into it in detail right now. I want to talk about the setup first, Patrick. The opening to this film was something I don't really think I was expecting, frankly. Uh, I was we jump into this underwater scene right away and it's like the hunt for Red October <laughs> and I'm going what is going on is there one ping only what is happening right now uh, I, I was not expecting because there's no Ethan Hunt this was a very interesting choice and I, I was curious how that played for you because we jump into this we have this submarine and we go through I mean, it is a pretty lengthy opening, at least 10 to 15 minutes, probably, of being with this Russian crew and kind of learning a little bit about this weaponized AI program that they have on board. Well, it's not really weaponized. They're, they're trying to run silently, much like Hunt for Red October, and they're, they're doing these training exercises, and it kind of malfunctions, and a missile, or a torpedo, sorry, gets fired at a mysterious unknown opponent submarine that isn't really there. And the torpedo comes back around and hits them and sinks them. So it basically sinks itself. And I I believe we're led to believe right off the bat that the AI is of course causing this to happen. And it no Ethan Hunt, like this is just straight up completely out of nowhere action movie stuff. How was your, what was your reaction to this? I won't put words in your mouth. No, don't because this is the, (laughs) I have several. My wife and I went to go see this together. So she's a big, big Tom Cruise fan. She watched, um, I came home from work one day, just a sidebar, and she had Top Gun Maverick queued up. And I was like, oh, that's great. She's like, yeah, this is my second time watching it today. I'm like, this is a two-hour movie. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And you managed to do the dishes and the laundry. So apparently, you know, (laughs) Tom Cruise is not that distracting. But no, she and I were both looking forward to this. She was excited about it. And there were moments, it's, it's so much fun to watch movies with her because she doesn't spoil the um, the moments. Like she gets into them. She's like grabbing my hands when things get really tense. Like we know that Ethan Hunt's not going to die, 
but there are moments in this movie where it's like, oh gosh, he might. And she's grabbing my hands and figuring, trying to figure things out. And she had questions. I was like, okay, Q&A afterwards. What do you got? Because I had some too. And we were trying to suss out some things. But this opening, always these kinds of openings kind of freak me out a little bit. Because when it comes to big action movies and you jump right into something that you explain later, my brain has a hard time getting my head around, like getting involved in that getting kind of the understanding of it it's just consistently i have to have it explained to me later which it is but i have to watch the movie again to really appreciate that moment because it's just such it's very jarring it's like oh here we are in a submarine and i had like 2001 vibes when the thing started kind of malfunctioning i was like is hal 9000 gonna start popping up and goes what are you doing dave you know and this it's just weird and then you find out that ai is the big bad of this movie <laughs> and i had my 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 reaction was like really hey hi like <laughs> the 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 faceless villain is is ai and this coming on the heels of one of the great villains of mission impossible <laughs> and so i was a little surprised i was I was feeling a little bit like, is this even a Mission Impossible movie or is this like Hunt for an October or another great just action movie that has characters like Ethan Hunt sort of hanging around doing some things here and there? Um, I didn't see any masks being like pulled off in the first 10 minutes, so I definitely felt like I was in the wrong movie at one point. But as we started getting into it, I really kind of I liked the threat. And for the most part, it hits for me. I think there were moments where you got Macquarie and company are like figuring stuff like, okay, it could do this. It could do that. There were other times when I'm like, no, I don't think AI is going to be throwing a raver. I don't think that's going to be happening. It's going to be throwing a big party for people, you know, (laughs) but there were other parts that I felt were really, really like perfect. Like when it digitizes a voice and becomes, you know, becomes a character, you know, becomes one of Hunt's people. I, I think that, what makes this interesting, Aaron, is that the the feel the feel and film franchise. <laughs> I wish we had one of those. The Mission Impossible franchise has always been appealing to me because of the way that it uses tech that is just outside of or pretty far beyond, but just kind of cool, far beyond our reach, but really kind of cool. When you introduce AI, you start getting into scary country. Because the fact is, everything that was happening in this movie, including the raver, by the way, you know, throwing a big party for itself. I could think at some on some level, okay, this could probably exist with everything we've seen in the last five to 10 years with how AI has become more prominent. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning is less about an entertainment movie, entertaining movie at, at some point and more about kind of a wake up call, like don't use AI, you know, be careful with this stuff. So it seemed more like a, a really high action PSA for me at, at times. It was very entertaining, very entertaining. And there were parts of it that were you know kind of missteps for me. Um, but for the most part, I latched on, I latched on to that idea because I think it's, it's original enough that it doesn't have to be a person and it's enough of a threat that I think all of us can understand. So it's very much a, a connectable threat to every one of us, which makes Ethan and his team and all the craziness that they do feel more believable. That's the other thing about mission impossible that I like is that all the stuff that happens on paper looks crazy, looks like fast and furious. But there's a level of believability to it because of the characters that carry the story. This new villain, AI, ironically, not real or not you know human, brings a lot more of that realism to the story. And I thought it was a really interesting choice. 
that's interesting hearing you say the AI brings realism to it. It's the weird place we live in when those words make sense. Right. But yeah, yeah I think what you said there, you use the words, it's kind of like a PSA. And I sort of agree with that. I think that's a good way to put it because this is such a current problem in the world today. It's something that is developing and it's no longer sci-fi is the, the, the issue I have almost in some ways. You know, when we were talking about how back when 2001 came out, it was still completely imaginary that maybe this would happen one day. But we're we're in a time where it happens. Google asked me just the other day, I got a pop-up because I use all the Google Suite tools and they were like, hey, you've been selected. Do you want to try out like, I don't even know what it's called, man, Magic Dashboard or something. It's like our AI helper. And I was like, sure, What what is this going to do? So I click it. So now I have this little pencil with a plus sign hovering on every single one of my Google documents and my Google Excel sheets and my Gmail, everything I use. It says, help me write. Oh, it's Google Labs. And if I click it, it's AI. Like I can click it and it says, help me write. And I can have it help me write my emails <laughs> if I want or write my notes for a podcast episode. Like it is everywhere. And so on an idea level, on a surface idea level, I think there is a case to be made for the interesting story to be told using AI as a threat for Ethan and the IMF. Personally, I felt that the story overall came out pretty weak. And it I've I, I thought that when I came out of it and I sort of soured on it as you and I have gone back through the last couple of episodes we've done because I've I've rewatched the ones that I like more and thought about like the stories. And I guess I was really let down by the lack of the syndicate following on. I thought we had set up this great thing, this reoccurring villain. Now I still am not convinced the syndicate's not going to come back now in part two of this somehow. And like, Oh, oh well it's the syndicate that actually is behind the AI. I'm not, that would not surprise me. Not one little bit at all, but where it really struggled to work for me is that AI is a, does not have a face. It is a, it is a, an entity, you know, it's a concept. And so they tried to, to give it a face at different times. And it was sort of wacky and sort of silly that didn't really fit in the mission impossible, serious kind of timeline that we had established with rogue nation and fallout. This is how I feel. And then on the human side, we tried to give it a human surrogate in Gabriel, this character. And God bless him, good for him trying, but the character is just completely anti-charismatic, does not come off as anywhere close to being as interesting as a Sean Harris, you know, in the previous two films as part of the syndicate, as a Philip Seymour Hoffman, or even as... Uh, you know, um, is it John Lithgow in the first movie? Am I getting the name no, right? No, it's uh, it's uh, it's Not what's John. her name's dad. <laughs> what's her name's dad? Sorry, um, uh, uh, it's the uh, other guy that I always confuse with yeah. John Lithgow. I'll I'll look him up while you talk. <laughs> he doesn't. We don't want his life. It's him, Varsity Blues guy. Why can't why is it you? Are we sure it's not John Lithgow? Anyway, that guy and. Those those people have interesting stories because they're they're humans. And Gabriel is just this thing that is being told what to do by a computer. And it just it really kind of just felt off 
to me. And I never quite connected with it in the same way as a as an interesting villain as I have in previous films. Yeah. So the guy's name is John Voight and uh, oh, he is Angelina right. Jolie's dad. That's him. Yeah. There I, I got Sorry. half of it, John. Yeah. I'm finding that yeah, you did. I'm finding that I'm as I get older, I can't remember actors and actresses' names. I'm like that guy in the thing. So forgive me for that. But I agree. And and that's kind of one of the the missteps I had is that it really felt like the villain and really his henchman. Like he doesn't seem Gabriel doesn't seem to have any kind of motive except what has now been created as a backstory for Ethan Hunt. So my confession is that I didn't finish. Um, I didn't finish. What was it? Uh, Fallout before watching this. We actually watched it afterwards, like later that night. But I got through half of it, and there were parts of this, Aaron, because I hadn't because I was watching things so out of order based off of when we were recording stuff. So I'd watched Fallout, part of Fallout, and then Mission Impossible, and then Rogue Nation, and this backstory of this girl that Ethan Hunt allows to die at the hands of Gabriel before he joins the IMF. I started thinking, wait, is that talked about at all? I don't think that is like, as far as I know, he's got one wife that he's married to, but she's gone. Like she left and fallout and that's not her. So as the movie progresses, there's this one particular moment where he talks about somebody's talking to Ethan about the sacrifices that he makes for these women in his life. And his wife doesn't come up like she's nowhere to be found. And I'm like, she was kind of significant for at least a movie and a half. But yet she's not mentioned at all in this. Now, I know she's not dead. I mean, that's obviously. But when you think about the things that were introduced in here that that really didn't sit great with me, like Gabriel, the reason Gabriel exists is because Ethan needs a backstory. <laughs> he needs motive in order to be going after Ethan. And then the reason that AI exists and can function is because he has to have somebody like Gabriel to be his voice, essentially, because AI or the entity or whatever it's called is there. And I felt like all of this stuff was sort of in service to Ethan as a character. My wife made a really great observation. She said, I'm not really loving the savior complex that he's got. And I said, what do you mean? She goes, well, it seems like, you know, he's the movie plays this up very well. He has this obsession about allowing the mission to fail at the at the expense of his team. Like he's like, nobody's going to die. I'm not going to do this mission. It has to be me. And he kind of comes across a little bit like this savior that I don't really want because what makes rogue nation, what makes ghost protocol, what makes fallout to an extent work so well in part is not only good villains, but also the fact that we have a team of people. And there's conflict within that team, which I think is good. You got Benji, who has his own personal stuff going on with with Ethan. Not that you know, not that big of a deal, but there, you know, him and Luther are both pivotal to Ethan, along with Ilsa, as we get into the later movies. And all of a sudden, you've got Dead Reckoning that's really all about Ethan trying to exercise these. I don't want my team to die. Well, nobody does. I mean, that's a that you know, that's what motivated him. In the first movie, his team's dead. They're all dead, you know? And it's a little frustrating because we've kind of gotten away from that. We got to the team. We've loved the team. The team is part of this whole franchise. And now it feels like all the focus is on Ethan's got to do it. Ethan's got to save the world. In fact, the whole thing with Kittrick at the end with that voiceover is like, Ethan, 
what you're going to do is going to affect the whole world and they're not going to know it, but their lives are in your hand. I'm like, dude, no, their lives need to be in the hands of IMF, not Ethan Hunt. This is Mission Impossible, not Ethan Hunt's journey. And I think that's kind of where I fell off a little bit because I was like, I don't want that. I want another great adventure and let the team be the the team. You know, Ethan can be the point man. You know, I don't I don't think he doesn't need to be the point man. But when you start making it all about him, now you've lost the kind of the the cool factor of what makes Mission Impossible great as a franchise. I think you're right. And I we kind of have talked about this in the past in our last couple episodes a little bit about the how he we we actually talked about it's positive in a lot of times where he doesn't want to let his teammates die. It's very important to him. He cares about them and but you're she brings up a great point like there is another side of that and and like any franchise this is this is the problem and will forever be the problem and we will continue to beat the drum and just say it over and over again because it will continue to be true which is the longer you go the harder it is because you end up recycling everything and this movie has so much recycling in it now i come down on the side which it sounds like very much like you did and a whole bunch of my friends have too which is this was a super entertaining movie all the way through, never lost my attention. And even though it's like two hours and 45 minutes, it's probably the least I've ever felt something of that length, if that makes sense. Like I didn't constantly check my watch. I just I was flowing. I felt like the pacing was phenomenal. But I still have these notes. And when we continue to go to that same well, Benji has almost died like four movies in a row. And it's just the same thing over and over and over again. And when you choose to not let him go and to continually have Ethan continually, I guess not technically he's lost a wife twice or lost a a love interest at least twice. Now, one of those times was sort of kind of retconned because she wasn't really lost in the end, but it, you know, he, he's lost people. And when we go with this whole losing Ilsa thing so that Ethan can be extra motivated again, it, it does start to get kind of frustrating because you have to be able to trust your team. And those are some more of the problems I had with it was that I, you know, and this was just a personal thing. Like I didn't really want Ilsa to go. I felt like it was an unfair way for her to die based on the skills we have seen her exhibit throughout the series. And I truly felt like the way it was written was just so obvious. It's like, okay, well, we have a younger new female star that we need to put in here because we got to keep giving you new cast members and new people to be excited about. And because of that, we got to get rid of the old one. Like we got, we got to, we got to cycle them in and out. And that frustrated me. Now it doesn't mean I didn't love Haley Atwell. You texted me right away. You loved her. I loved her. She's fantastic, but I didn't want her necessarily to be there at the expense of doing nothing, literally no real progression at all for Ilsa. She's just there to be saved and then to die. (laughs) And so that was, that was a real struggle for me with how much I love that character. So I, I'm in I'm in the exact same boat you are. And then I kind of extend that to Kittredge. So when I look at Kittredge, 
in this movie. It, it, I really wanted to ask you about this when we were talking about okay. Mission Impossible last week. Since you okay. brought him up, I'm not. I'm just very quickly interrupting you to say, where has this man been for 27 years? Why is he suddenly the IMF director again? And no one has asked this question. He just is. It is. It's my. But he's fantastic. He's fantastic. But it's weird. Okay, go ahead. He is. But I think his whole point in this movie was twofold. One, it was a my bad to the death of Hunley. They were like, oh, you know what? We probably could have kept him because director Hunley, you know, Alec Baldwin would have been fine in this role that Kittredge had because Kittredge was not doing anything different than Hunley would have been doing. Second, is he dead? He is dead. Yeah, died he died in fallout. fallout. You must not have Sorry. watched that far <laughs> again. No, no, I, no, I did. No, no, no. no that's <laughs> what I'm saying is the, one of the reasons that Kittredge is here is because Hunley is dead. Like the fact is, and they're like, oops, sorry, we can't not make Hunley well, not dead. We can't tell anybody about, about the IMF. So call, call up Kittredge. He's out in the uh, he's out in the Poconos. <laughs> let's uh, let's what? let's get him back. Get him back to uh, Langley. Hurry up. <laughs> but I also think his character, the director, the whole point of his character was to give Grace, Haley Atwell's character, an opportunity to become an IMF agent. In my opinion, I don't think that character, the director of the IMF, had any purpose other than to do that. Now, could you have written it without a director? Probably not. That's kind of already been done in Rogue Nation, (laughs) where you didn't have a secretary, you didn't have a director, and it made for fun dialogue and all that good stuff. So I, I think... Kittredge, I wanted more from Kittredge because if you bring a character back from an original IP from the very first movie, he had such a prominent role in that movie. And I wanted to see some of that in his relationship with Ethan. We got hints of it, but it didn't feel like he had any kind of point beyond just those two purposes filling in for Hunley because he's not around anymore and giving grace the opportunity to make a choice and to choose to accept it but i absolutely agree with you i think if we're going to swap one fantastic actress out for another this is the way to do it i was okay with ilsa's death i think that when you add two strong female characters like that and put them on screen you're gonna have to let one go i would have rather in all honesty, for the sake of stakes, seen Benji die. Because Benji is the guy who he's been around long enough that his death would have been impactful. And the things that he brings are not necessarily things that will be a dramatic loss. I'm not saying he wasn't valuable to the team, but there's this great conversation in the airport where he's talking to, uh, you know, the, the, Phineas Freak or the or the the Net Ranger, all that stuff that coming back from the first one, and they're they're comparing nerd notes. They're like, I can do this better than you, and the fact is, he can't. Like, it's actually like he knows how to disarm a bomb that doesn't have a nuclear <laughs> reactor or something in it. But I think with between him and Luther, if you had lost him, Luther would have been able to accomplish the things in the next entry that would have been been beneficial. There would have been loss for sure. There would have been camaraderie loss and there would have been some capability loss, but not enough that you feel like, oh man, they couldn't get through this without Benji. Yeah, they could have because, you know, Luther's equally as like nerdy and, and smart and he could have helped. So his death would have been really more impactful, I think, than Ilsa's. A hundred percent agree. 
I would have actually cried and been upset. And that's the point. Like I was invested enough in Benji and Benji's close calls that it would have wrecked me to lose him. And I think it would have been more impactful to Ethan as a story because Ilsa is less in his life. When you look at her involvement over time, how long she's been there, what she actually means to him, it's really not nearly, nearly as much. And she's capable. So when she is caught up in uh, something happening, she's not meant to die. She's meant to be able to hold her own. But if she does go, it's because she was outmatched. If Benji goes, it's typically because he is known for very specific skills that can't get him out of everything. Like someone like Ilsa is able to get out of Ilsa is should be able to get out of a hand to hand fight. Like she's an elite agent, supposedly on par with Ethan. And it's sort of unfair because we set up this opening scene where like they escape miraculously in a, you know, sandstorm in this awesome, like call of duty mission. But then she gets beat hand to hand pretty quickly. And it's like, it doesn't make sense. Whereas if Benji gets captured and gets a bomb strapped to him, Benji doesn't have an out. Like he can't fight his way out of things. And so I would have felt that that was much more impactful to Ethan and pro propulsive for him as a means of like making his character deal with something emotional on top of whatever it was they were trying to do. So I, I would have liked that as well a lot better. And then I also just felt like they just keep teasing it. And then they they kind of didn't. I, the writing for me is just it's just a little lazy at times. Like the the Patrick, the AI is so powerful. And they want to show it being powerful to the point that it largely. Handcuffs the IMF of using their tech, which is the fun stuff that I want to see, but we can't see it as much because it's AI is able to control it. But then we get Benji in a car, letting the car self-drive itself. So, yeah, I want to. Why I, would you not drive Benji off the freaking cliff? This is what I'm saying. This is <laughs> this is one of those moments that I thought. Is the AI wait, busy? You, you I mean, hold. You are, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Absolutely. I mean, like, yeah, yeah, please. Yeah, hang I'm on, on the line yeah. with Gabriel, I'm, Benji. Yeah, I can't I, kill you right now. Exactly, <laughs> right? That's I think that is one of the the kind of the eyesores of this movie is you're not adhering to your own rules. AI, you set it up as this global thing. Like it's not isolated. If you had set it up as being sort of framed, okay, it can only hit American satellites or it can only go past North America. So now you've created this sort of well, now again, I know that's far fetched and you know preposterous, but you know, bear with me here. But if you give it some kind of limitation, then you can add rules to that and say, okay, as long as we're out from under this umbrella of AI for Mission Impossible, we can start doing these things. But because you've established it as having no limit, no ability to be contained unless you get this little key and you go down to the bottom of the ocean and you stick it in a submarine, somehow that's going to you know, make it, make it better. I, I just, I had a hard time with the, the inconsistency in the rules. Like there were times when you see IMF set up their whole like uh, command base with CRTs and all this other stuff. And like, it's all analog. I'm like, that's great. But you're on a train 
the Orient Express. I was hoping Perot would show up at some point and solve a mystery while we were there. Um, but <laughs> there was a lot there that I'm thinking it could manipulate anything because you set it up to say it can do anything. You've got to give it limitations. You've got to at least explain, here's what it can't do at this point. Here's because of where it's located or because of how it was coming. I where, where's the origin of this? Like, how did, I don't think I ever heard it explained. Where did this thing come from? Like, who is its maker? Because that seems a little weird. Just like, you know, Kittrich's, you know, mysterious reappearance in IMF. I don't think I remember from the story that, oh, it was created by blah, blah, blah. I don't um, think so. That's it, why I think that the, the syndicate is still in play. Okay. It's all about like who gets control of the dangerous thing. Maybe it said it during the very opening, like the Russians, but, but we don't, but we don't really know, you know what I mean? Like it, who somebody could have made it and given it to somebody. And this is all about who gets to own the big bad weapon. But yeah. I don't think it's for certain. It's interesting. It, it just there's just there's just those little story beats that for me hold this back from being on par with the what I feel are just super tight narratively previous entries. Now, where this doesn't drop the ball at all in my opinion <laughs> is the action and in addition to the cast members we've already talked about a little bit, we can talk more about Haley as uh, Grace as well like this supporting cast like overall minus gabriel i think i think those two elements of this film are just utterly exceptional and make this a really that's what allows this to be such a fun blockbuster so action set pieces which one do you want to talk about first <laughs> what did you love i want to talk about the airport that was my favorite okay and i think because of the tech so when, so one time when we AI get to see it, it before it gets yeah. kind of shut off. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Before it, they turn off the switch, we get to see some, some some tech. Like everything about that whole sequence was was really well done in terms of like the the balance of dialogue, levity. You know, you're laughing here and there. Um, I love the fact that we have this ability to manipulate a person's face digitally. So you have the the IMF team looking for uh, or the CIA looking for for Ethan and just having creating this whole kind of goose chase. It also introduces grace to us. And I, I, when I saw Haley Atwell's name on the credits, I was like, Oh my gosh. And we're going to see agent Carter like 2.0 here. And we did. She's a great pickpocket. And her chemistry with Ethan was really, really good. The way they danced verbally together when he steals the key and the whole bit with the key and the Geiger counter in the, in the, uh, in the uh, lighter, all that stuff was just so well done. Like this is classic Mission Impossible stuff. It's a whodunit, goose chase, um, thievery. It's all that stuff that this is what the original Mission Impossible had. It was it was all those things wrapped up in about a ten to fifteen minute sequence that was really well like lit. The cinematography was fantastic. Everything felt like so futuristic state of the art i felt like it was in charles de gaulle airport like everything was you know glass and and all this neat stuff it just it felt high tech it felt like this is the ideal place if you're going to introduce a character like the entity this is the playground for it and of course this is where i think it's used the most effectively because it understands for <laughs> reasons unknown how to manipulate all this stuff and i i just think it was a it was a phenomenal uh phenomenal scene yeah, I quite enjoyed that as well. And 
I liked, like you said, the one time we kind of got to use some tech with the glasses and such. And it was just a really, really fun spy movie thing. And the rest of these are much more on the action side of things. We get a very long car chase. We always seem to get a car chase. Once again, this thing just makes Fast X, which came out a few months ago, look completely pathetic by comparison when you see these things happening. And we get the motorcycle jump. One of the things that I will forever be upset about is that I don't understand why a movie as big as Mission Impossible and this franchise has been needs to spoil all of its moments, but it's already putting out featurettes on the motorcycle jump. It's got the whole thing in the background making of documentary basically out about this scene before people even see the movie. And then they did something similar with the train. Luckily, I didn't know about that. I hadn't seen it, but I know that it was out there before the movie actually came out. I just don't get that. And it frustrates me because Patrick, I would have had the reaction that the movie wanted me to have in that moment had I not known it was coming. But I kid you not, the whole time that I was watching the build up to this motorcycle jump, in my head, when I see the the slanted slope of the mountain, I literally was envisioning the actual ramp that I've watched him jump off of when he did this stunt. And it it took me out of it some, right? So when he's out there floating it's like yeah but i've already seen you do this like i've seen you on the poster like in the air like i I don't know it just it it didn't hit quite as hard i mean it's still it's still incredible and awesome and super cool that he's doing it himself no doubt but i just wish that they would hold this stuff closer to the vest what they didn't tell us they, they told us he was gonna fight on a train that's the thing that they sort of spoiled was that apparently they actually either bought or built this train so that they can crash it. <laughs> it's like Christopher Nolan buying the Boeing plane to blow up in Tenet. And that he was on the train fighting Ethan and Gabriel were doing that for real, going like 60 miles an hour, which is insane to me. Insane. I don't know how much better that makes it look. Honestly, I don't know for a fact that that couldn't have been done on a stage somewhere. And I would have registered it that differently (laughs) but it's cool to know that that i guess that they put their lives at risk for it i mean it's a fun combat scene but then we get to the end of this and i know you had to be thinking the exact same thing i was thinking which was why are we ripping off uncharted 2 yeah right (laughs) yes i was so thinking man i'm ready to go play some uncharted 2 now at least the the prologue you know because this is basically it and i think for me i I kept laughing i was like okay how many trains are gonna have to fall like how many train cars do you have to go through before it actually stops because gravity apparently is just going to continue to take effect and all those train cars are going to fall like at some point you just have to stop (laughs) or it's all going to fall in And I didn't figure, I was looking for the one mechanism that said, okay, this train car is far enough back that if we just cut off train car number three now or number four, it'll stop. But what we got was the piano and then then everything fell. And then we see Ethan and we see Grace and we see, uh, I don't remember her name, but um, Gabriel's like henchman or whatever, you know, standing 
And I'm like, why are you not falling in? Because the other four cars were doing the exact same thing. Like every time you'd leave one car, the next one would be halfway over the cliff. <laughs> so I just, I don't know about that, but I thought the exact same thing. I was like, I think Uncharted 2 did it better personally. I just, I, I really do. I think they did it better. Yeah. It's, it's hard for someone who's played that video game and it's different. Like you're one guy and you're, but you're doing almost the same things. Like you're climbing up the outside and then pieces are falling off beside you. So then you got to go up the center and you literally are climbing up the backs of the seats, using them as handholds, just like they did in this movie and dodging things that come in and trying to get to the next car. And ultimately you have to skitter up the sides to get out before the whole train goes over in the video game. But it is so similar to that. And it's still intense. It's still awesome to see, but there was certainly a level of unbelievability that this took the things to, for me, very similar to what we saw at the end of Fallout with the helicopters, which is the thing that I dinged that movie for pretty much solely. Everything else I love about that film, but like at the very end, it sort of becomes cartoonish because this helicopter's crashing and then people are like, you know, getting all, you know, Henry Cavill gets out of the crashed helicopter all completely blackened and like, you know, stomps towards Ethan. And it's just like people aren't dying anymore because they're superheroes. And it felt very much like that in this one. It just kept going yeah. and going and going. It's a video game. I mean, that's the thing is if you die, you just reset and go back to the last checkpoint. And so it, it would make me it would have made me laugh if Ethan and Grace had fallen off the train and then it faded to black and then we get them back on the train at the last checkpoint when they're trying to climb back up like oh okay yeah because they're not going to die they're not supposed to do that one thought i had aaron thinking about the um the train sequence which by the way i feel like the train sequence was sort of redemptive of the train sequence from the first mission impossible that was not my favorite set piece by any means it felt very much overly cgi-esque like a lot of green screen I'm not saying Christopher McQuarrie was like, listen, if we're going to go back to the well with with Kittredge and uh, magic tricks and whatnot, and we're going to you know, do a train sequence, let's make sure it's practical. I think just thinking at a macro level as a just a moviegoer, Tom Cruise and Christopher McQuarrie have started to pride themselves on practical effects and stunts. Like if we think about Tom Cruise and one of the things we love about him is that he does a lot of his own stunts. Like he's 85 years old or something and he's still, you know, throwing himself off cliffs digitally or otherwise and and doing these big things. And to its detriment, I think that's being pointed out more than it needs to be because of exactly what you said with regard to that cliff jump. I've seen it 20 times. It comes in every promo whether it's a teaser, whether it's the full trailer, whether it's advertising for Mountain Dew or something like that, it's there. And I think in part, the mystique is lost when you watch it because I wasn't thinking like you and like I was thinking behind the scenes stuff, but I was like, when he's driving around, I'm like, oh, there's the cliff in the background that he's going to jump off of and I'm missing dialogue and I'm all the stuff leading to like when he, so the thing is, is I see him in that outfit on a motorcycle and I'm like, there's no way he's going to get on the train like Benji wants him to. How is he going to get up to this cliff. And again, that seemed a little far-fetched the way he, he even said, Benji, I think I went the wrong way. I said, nope, you didn't. He's like, what? Are you kidding me? I have to do this. And it almost felt like an excuse to show off. Let's see how cool the stunt work is. It, it was a cool shot, but did it really need to be that? No, it didn't. He didn't need to go all the way up there to jump off a cliff and parachute perfectly onto a train where he knocks out not one, 
but two henchmen. I think he could have. I think he did. I think the the design of it is fine, but I think what you're what you were pointing out with Jin Benji, this is where trailers and promo can certainly hurt because the movie's intent is to build up tension. We're not supposed to know what's happening, just like Ethan. Ethan doesn't know where he's going. Benji just keeps telling him, just just keep going, just keep going. All we see is a map as a viewer, right, who has no outside knowledge except what we're seeing in the movie. So our heartbeats should be going, oh, God, what's Ethan going to do? Oh, my gosh, what's Ethan going to do? Oh, boy, is he is he sending him up? How's he going to get down? What's he going to do? How's he going to get down? And then Ethan, conversely, in a real situation, why would Benji be withholding this information? It's not good storytelling. It's simply not. I'm, I, I hate sounding like a broken record, but it Benji would not just send Ethan to the top of a cliff and keep saying, oh, I don't know, just keep going, just keep going. No, you're going to explain to him what to do so he can prepare himself accurately. You're not going to be like, just drive off the cliff and figure it out, Ethan. Good luck. You know, and ex- you, know, you would you would give yeah. him that information. No, I get that. And so as someone who's seen this at, more recently than you have, there were some mechanics in there that prevented Benji from giving him the whole truth. He was not looking at it in 3D. Oh. He wasn't looking at it in certain ways. So, but okay. your point is well made. I see. And the, the, the side point that I was making is that I really feel like these big pieces can be impactful, but I think they're shown off early because the Mission Impossible franchise and really anything with Tom Cruise is showing off how practical effects are awesome. Okay, that's great. I get that. And how stunt work is fantastic. And the, and the truth is, Aaron, when I see him, if this is all real, if that train is going that fast and Ethan has to duck under the tunnel and he's going that fast under a tunnel about two inches from the top, that's pretty sick. Like, that's amazing. But at the same time, there felt for me a sense of elevating the stunt work, elevating the practical effects, the the technicality of this movie above the story. And I'm like you as someone, well, this this is not like you. This is me saying this, that as someone who complains about the lengths of movies these days, like two and a half, three hours, whatever, like you, I didn't feel that length. Like everything was absolutely well paced. Like during the whole sequence, the the car ride and everything, when they switched to like the <laughs> little bitty car and have like funny, like the spin outs and like doing donuts None of that bothered me. I mean, it was lengthy for sure, but it kept my attention. So did this train sequence. I think where my frustration can come from is the fact that there were times when the actors, the story, the characters were outdistanced by the set pieces only for the sake of saying, let's show this audience all these wow factors to an extent where it was like, you didn't need to give me all this stuff. I didn't need the train falling off the cliff. I didn't need to see that explosion. I mean, just slow the train down, for goodness sake, because after all the uh, passengers went to the back of the train, I never thought about them again. I was like, OK, well, that's cool. And so for me, I, I think the the spectacularness, the spectacle of it is cool, but I don't know that it served the story completely well for me. Yep. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Uh, super fun, super exciting and entertaining, but a bit empty in what it leaves you with. That's the difference between a great movie and a, a good movie or a really good movie even is that when you walk away from them, they give you something to chew on and you're like, man, man, that's interesting. Or wow, that was really cool. That like 
and you're wondering how things are going to play out or how they could have played out differently. And, and this one just didn't hit like that for me. I loved some of the side characters though. Shea Wiggum for me, probably MVP. I, I don't know why, but I just thought he was freaking phenomenal and stole every scene. He is the American special ops guy that along with what's his name? I, I'm trying to think of uh, his top gun name, but <laughs> He's uh, one of the pilots. Uh, he's one of the pilots in Top Gun Maverick. He and Shea Wiggum are on the trail of Ethan Hunt. And I just thought that he got really the best one-liners and sort of comedic beats in the film. Obviously, it never really launches into full-on jokey nature. But man, he was just a ton of fun. Um, sort of out of his depth and uh, and out of his element the whole movie as this just it's just a pain in the butt like he was never really a threat he was more just like ethan's dealing with fighting off palm clementif uh and you know and gabriel <laughs> so he's got this major like assassin and she was awesome like in this very silent role that is very different than what she plays as mantis in guardians of the galaxy and then you just got these two like normal dudes with pistols that just keep showing up all the time, like bothering him like gnats. But I, I thought they handled that really well. Yeah. I like them. I like them quite a bit. I think they served in that kind of lighter actiony role where, and, and I, you know, you call them the eyesores, you can call them like, you know, bugs or flies on the windshield. It was very much like you knew that they weren't going to be much of a threat, but yeah, I agree. I also like the return of Vanessa Kirby. I thought she is just great in this and, um, you know, I, <laughs> she's great in playing grace, playing her. Like there's this moment where I always wonder when you're, when you put on a mask, one of the many masks in this franchise, I, I thought I was thinking about, okay, Haley Atwell is playing this girl. No, she's actually not like she, you know, Vanessa Kirby is playing herself, playing Haley Atwell, playing her. And I just I like her return. I like the purpose that that she served as being part of this group because she's nice carryover from Fallout. I and mean, she was a very compelling character. I like the the running joke that she still doesn't know what Ethan Hunt's real name is. She still calls him by the the I forget the Jack something or whatever, but um it's it's just nice and her performance is just really really a lot of fun especially with her her uh, her right-hand man. I can't remember his name, but yeah, I really like Vanessa Kirby in this. Me too. I was glad to see her return as well. And I think that one really fun thing about her is with those masks. And when people get to play in the mask, two different versions of the same character or try to, it's almost like the Dungeons and Dragons, like role play scenarios that I've been doing a lot of lately where you are Vanessa Kirby, but you're trying to pretend to be Haley Atwell in in your skin of Vanessa Kirby, you know, and instead of yourself. And it's like a character within a character within a character. It starts getting layered, and it's just really, really fascinating stuff. I also wanted to ask you this. We are seven movies deep now in this franchise. Obviously, James Bond has a lot more than that over its many, many iterations. But I think we got five Daniel Craig movies overall. So we can kind of compare, you know, and contrast like at least groups of James Bond runs. 
who's the better spy? Like, what's the better representation of a spy in a series for you? For me, it's going to be James Bond. And it's not just about the gadgetry, but it's about the way that you carry yourself. So James Bond is the epitome of a guy who uses people as part of his team, but is always going to be the guy. That's why his movies are called James Bond. You know, they star James Bond and not Ethan Hunt. I think in terms of action, in terms of being able to get through a lot of this stuff, I mean, we saw... Ethan's running on full display as we usually do. I think at some point there's a there's a little bit of like kind of a head nod that McCory's like we need to show him running because that's what people know him as is the guy who runs. And uh I think from that standpoint Ethan's got the Ethan's got the physicality. I don't think I don't think uh, James Bond has that. I think James Bond has the charisma and I think he's got he's got a better well-rounded set of skills like he knows how to break into stuff and he knows how to go underwater and still and come out with the scuba diving suit and then tear that off and he's got a tuxedo i don't see ethan hunt necessarily doing that as much although he can but i think he requires more people to be able to complete his missions whereas james bond is probably the more complete spy yeah if i was to say i want my perfect examples of each i would say at the height of everything it's probably still the james bond model for me i don't know that i would say it is in particular the james bond movies that we have i think if i was to rank all the james bond and all the ethan hunt movies you would definitely have a mixture at the very top of them i think my overall favorite might end up being an ethan hunt movie but my number two and three might be james bond and my number four and five might be ethan hunt so i think that they both really have different strengths the action is is become kind of the calling card of this christopher mcquarrie run mission impossible part here in the last four movies five if you count the one with brad bird uh or four if you count the one with brad bird and three with mcquarrie directing them so I, i like them as well but i think we have gotten to the point where we really do start to border on just that unbelievability and i liked it when it stays closer to the vest. I like it. It's why Mission Impossible 1 and Mission Impossible Rogue Nation are so near and dear to my heart is because they both feel just on the cusp of like, okay, if we had a super spy, this is the kind of stuff that they would end up having to do and they would be able to achieve it. They probably wouldn't be able to climb up like 15 different train cars uh, while saving someone in the process, unfortunately. Would James Bond be able to climb up 15 different uh, train cars, do you think? Absolutely not. Actually, I think James Bond is much more or less on the athletic side. I mean, he doesn't Agreed. get put in these situations. He Right. It's almost always technology or or wit or smart spanter that ends up getting him out of his charisma that get him out of situations. It's not and that, masks yeah. and action. Right. And that's why that's why for me, I think he's a stronger spy because that's what spies lean into. But I will say this, forgetting Dead Reckoning Part 2, if you were to give me in two years a brand new James Bond movie or a brand new unconnected Mission Impossible movie, I'm going to watch the Mission Impossible movie first because I love the team. I love what Ethan Hunt and his crew, this crew up, have created. Now, in my ideal state, I would have Ethan Hunt, I'd have Ilsa, I'd have 
out of all these, you know, his original, you know, not his original people, but Simon Pegg and Ving Rains, you know, both those guys, like all together doing another adventure unrelated to anything else. Like I want to see them in another adventure. So that being said, you know, I think Bond is a stronger spy, but my preference is a Mission Impossible movie. I think I'd probably agree with that. And I don't have a lot else to say. Yeah, I don't either. (laughs) (laughs) I'm excited for the end of this. I I do want very much for it to go out on a high, and I think it still can. But I hope that, honestly, if it is not already written, I kind of hope that it is, because I think sometimes when you wait to see what an audience reaction is, that can be a bad thing. On the other hand, if you're listening, Chris McQuarrie, Maybe dial it back. Maybe maybe put the twist in there early in part two that kind of brings this AI thing down a notch and back to home. And let's get a little analog with this and dial it down. And and I think you could really land the plane on just an amazing run so far. But if we keep dragging it out like Fast and the Furious and we keep having to try and go up, 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 which I'm pretty sure is what's going to happen. The law of diminishing returns is undefeated. Is all I'm going to say. Yeah. All right, Aaron, that's going to wrap up this one. Thanks for this fantastic conversation. We're going to be back next week with something. We don't know just yet. It's a big week. It's Oppenheimer week. It's Barbie week. And man, if we got those two movies confused, talking about them both, that would be just kind of nutso. So come back next week. We'll have one of those two coming at you. And uh, in the meantime, keep watching, keep enjoying, keep loving movies. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.